When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, everybody, and welcome back to New Books in Art, a podcast channel on the New Books Network. I'm Holiday Powers, the host of your channel. Today, we'll be talking to Annika Lenson about her new book, Beautiful Agitation, Modern Painting and Politics in Syria. Hi, Annika. Hi, Holiday. Welcome to the show. I wonder, Annika, if you could begin by telling us a bit about yourself. Sure. Well, and I'll start actually by thanking you for this exciting invitation. It's a pleasure to speak about my book to the network. I am a researcher and teacher. Um, At present, I am a professor at UC Berkeley teaching broadly on a topic we can call global modernism. I uh, came to this field, I know that you had indicated people might be interested in that. I came to the field of global modernism and the the sort of regional specialization we'll be talking about most today, which is uh, the Middle East or the um, Swana region. I came to it through a background as a college student in art practice rather than art history. Um, I had grown up in Ohio in a relatively rural northwest part of Ohio and didn't have access to historical framing of art so much as access to practicing it in school. And even in college, I was a painter. And then uh, once finishing, after, you know, earning a living, uh, spending some time reflecting on what it means to learn, uh, realized how meaningful it was to me to be in settings where we activate images actually collectively, thinking about what they raise for us. And when I say us, this was even like my experience in studios and crits, um, organizing with other artists, events. I got involved with a performance group in Boston, which is where I was teaching. And those experiences of trying to produce conditions for engaging art made me realize I was interested in historical conditions for uh, engaging art and made my way through coursework fairly randomly to the region insofar as I registered for a course on the art of the Islamic book. So a course thinking about historical formations and again, what we now call the Middle East, it it had a different sort of imagined topography at the time. thinking about a relationship to painting that wasn't about oil painting and the like. That's a roundabout answer just to say that guided by interests as well as different scales of community, I made my way to graduate school um, and onward. I hope that answered. I I assume we'll go next to sort of thinking about Syria specifically and how I got involved in that, but I'll save that for a later, later answer. Well, so at that, tell us how you came to write about modern art in Syria. Sure, thanks. Uh, You know, so once entering graduate school, I entered without any of the skills a person needs to do high level research, including like the language skills of learning Arabic. And my mentor, Nasser Rabat, uh, was sort of just a believer in the necessity of engaging with the modern period, which for now, let's say the 20th century, which is a historical period that we might often bracket thinking along uh, technological change, for instance, so the 20th century defined by industrialization, new techniques for making images, and so on. 
because these technological changes make the conditions, even for memory, so different from what we imagine they were historically, often the modern period of art making in the Middle East had been treated by Islamic art historians as so distinct and different that the entire field of Islamic art history ended in the 19th century. And we have lots of great colleagues that have written about that conundrum of somehow thinking a tradition ends just because the technological means for producing images or for circulating them changes. And my mentor, Nasser Mavat, just really felt that that paradigm had to be changed and you know, brought on students in my era. This was in the early 2000s and uh, my graduate schools, the Massachusetts Institute of Technology, brought in a kind of cohort of students that were that he was going to support to write modern histories. And so my first step was to um, get fluent enough in Arabic that I could engage not only the images, but the practitioners, right? Actually do interviews uh, and be able to access all of the journalistic uh, material that participated in activating the meaning of these images. And so at the time, in 2006, Syria, the country that I, that I write about in this book, and that is um, so crucial, I think, to actually understanding a lot of shifts in 20th century art broadly, not just in the region. Syria's University of Damascus had one of the most highly regarded uh, Arabic language programs. Um, and I went there for two summers to start learning Arabic. And while there, and I write about this a little bit in the introduction to the book, it was a really remarkable time. It was, of course, uh, pre the so-called Arab Spring, prior to the revolutions in Syria, that um, because the Assad regime uh, clamped down so cruelly and, and widely uh, the civil conflict and refugee crises and everything we might now associate with Syria. At the time, it was a interesting moment where the Syrian regime was lightly opening its economy and cultural sectors and had created a dedicated arts neighborhood in the old city. So I had, I think, unlike researchers who would have been there even two years earlier than I was, I had remarkable access to the living great painters that had studied in the College of Fine Arts in the 70s, for instance, and even in the 60s. And I was able to talk with a vast range of artists quickly and easily and see their work. And that was so exhilarating and so interesting and different ways of how they structured their narratives about uh, the traditions they were inheriting, the kind of ambitions they'd been exposed to in the art school, the excitement with which everybody reported on those days, uh, the kind of golden age of the 60s in particular and earlier 70s when it was possible to um, be experimental and uh, try out strategies in the classroom and have uh, teachers present who'd re reply positively and to sort of mobilize questions and problems in a, in a collective space. That was so compelling that after the second year of going there in the summer to gain my language skill, I came back certain that I wanted to continue to work on the Syrian context to ask questions about the meaning of modern painting and, and how it's how it accrued uh, different political valences at mid-century. And so that was the entry point. The entry point was talking to Syrian artists who thought that period was a kind of historical key to um, their own uh, practice and legacy. Can you describe what your research process looked like as the year went, the years went on? Because you started in 2006, but then you were also really in the midst of a lot of that doctoral research when those civil conflicts started and when you were no longer able to return to Syria to do that on the ground research. What was the effect of that on how your research was shaped or where you were able to go for resources? That's a great question. And, um, you know, the answer is multifaceted as any research process is. I uh, was lucky to have a Fulbright in 2010. And 
spent, I think it was a total of seven or maybe even up to eight months living in Damascus in an apartment in uh, Muhajirin and have and heading to the National Museum in Damascus and the National Library every day um, to attempt and often successfully uh, gain access to materials. And I'll talk about those in, in one moment. Um, I'll say that a standard way to write the history of modern painting, for instance, let's, let's stick with painting for now, which is the privileged art form of the 20th century in a lot of ways. Um, and for Arab artists in a region thought to have no oil painting traditions prior to modernity, it's really the signifier par excellence of like a modern art. So a lot of historians track that format. And then, and historians both within the region, so like Arab art historians thinking about what an Arab art history looks like, but also art historians outside of it, um, building on those narratives and resources. A common tactic is to talk about generations of artists and to even track by teachers, right? So so-and-so studied with these artists and generations get formed through the kinds of institutional structures that are there to support them. And that was my way into this material as a graduate student. And so this book, I should probably clarify, is like 15 years of work, right? All It's my dissertation and also a whole phase of work after completing the dissertation to continue to rethink and, and revise the arguments. Um, and to your point, that span uh, could be divided into sort of pre- uh, Syrian civil war and post-Syrian civil war. So initially I went thinking about generations, but also being a little skeptical about whether generations represent breaks or not. In a way, they represent great continuities. So the research process involved both going to um, institutions that were vested with the obligation of you know, maintaining historical materials like the museum, but also uh, going to individual practitioners and asking them for their memories uh, and seeing what they had in their personal, just, you know, accumulated lived history of letters and uh, exhibition pamphlets and clippings uh, from their own career. And in Syria, some of these artists were also sort of gallerists. So I spent a lot of time with an artist who doesn't appear in the book, but who enabled a lot of it named Mamdouf Kashlan who had run a gallery called Ornina for decades with the regime's approval and just had a remarkable uh, accrued material that he, you know, each visit, he'd bring out a few things, <laughs> keep me coming back. So these, you know, these friendships of uh, making sure people trust that you're not going to distort their memory um, is really important for this kind of work. And at the, at the National Art Museum, I was really lucky. The, there, the National Art Museum is renowned, and rightly so, for its more historical materials. So the different Islamic, sort of like the Umayyad period, uh, pre-Islamic uh, materials in, in the form of mosaics um, and ancient work. Uh, but they did always have a modern art wing from 1953 onward. And a small exhibition hall that uh, was not the public favorite and was often locked, but you could ask it to be unlocked and go see the work. And I was really lucky that uh, part of during part of the time I was there, they were moving all of their archives from one uh, site to another. And the employees that were working on that, it was a vast archive of um, materials related to the production of exhibitions from, the, from 53 onward, including for a period of time, the person who headed that section had a clipping service. So anybody who researches modern art, it's really interesting, prior to the internet, um, people that ran presenting centers where they were needed to do research on artists and decide if they wanted to show them, or if they were tracking response to their exhibitions, they employed these clipping services that every day opened up all the papers and looked for relevant content and sniffed out the articles and um, gave them to that office. So if for the earlier 50s, mid 50s, there were even clippings um, covering the events that were from a vast, like all of the different papers in Syria. And prior to the 60s, Syria had a much freer press and a lot of coverage of art. And I was permitted to 
while helping the staff organize the materials for their transfer to this other storage area, they let me look at all of that and even take photographs. So I had remarkable access, more than most other researchers, Syrian or not, uh, thanks to that um, entry into the museum. And I documented all of that uh, prior to the war. And that became the bedrock for the book. Um, and it allowed me to make arguments about Syrian art that I think would have been impossible to make if I were simply consulting the publicly available work in the National Library, because I could actually see the disagreements that had broken out around certain artworks. And the more controlled public narrative shows the great works that were received and celebrated. It's pretty hard to find evidence of, of disagreements in settings where a regime becomes very invested in triumphalist narratives. And of course, and you know this as an art historian too, a lot of our training in terms of techniques for interpreting the meaning of works in, in a kind of um, social art history model involves saying, like scanning what people say about work and analyzing it for the patterns of what is a problem. Like in order to recognize newness, we say, what about this artwork do people have trouble talking about? <laughs> or what like what really stuck here and didn't fit into the existing models that forced artists to think about it or forced a debate or how do we understand what was important if we don't have access to somebody saying this was important and a lot of it is analyzing these patterns of response so when you're working in conditions where responses that vary are a problem for the regimes that come later that are that want a kind of consensus it can be really difficult. And I just, you know, this book couldn't have been written without that 2010 uh, moment where materials were getting moved. And there was an, enough of an interest by the museum in revisiting that history uh, that I was given this unique access. And I'd like to say one more thing for listeners. Um, you know, the other thing that brought the interest within Syria to its 20th century history was a change in market. So suddenly collectors, again, even within Syria, but especially in the region, were interested in this modern heritage and were buying paintings at a very high price. So this prompted a lot of internal revisiting of the artworks and thinking about uh, what they meant, especially now that they suddenly meant some, they had like gotten this status as collectibles for others. I think that the museum curator rightly was thinking about how can we claim this not as a commodity, but as our own kind of shifting institutional investment in the paintings. So it, it was a really nice atmosphere also to have those curators as interlocutors and to, and to revisit these exhibition materials with them. And of course, all of that uh, then changed in, in 2011 um, with these waves of revolutions. And in Syria, the revolution was so violently uh, tamped down. It, uh, and the weapons trade is just too vast that it, it um, you know, it, it does make access for me impossible. And, you know, several of the curators that had been my interlocutors fled Syria. Um, you know, everybody's status and sense of their own access to this history changed um, quickly and, dra and dramatically. For me, um, you know, that meant that I engaged the work from this more distance position uh, that I always had anyway as a foreigner. I taught for two years at the American University in Cairo. And that was an interesting institutional home for thinking about Syria because there were Syrian refugees in Egypt. So the status of the Syrian and, and Syrian modern history was very contested there. And yet at the same time, the American University in Cairo had wonderful um, newspaper collections and cultural journal collections from across the Arab world from, from an earlier moment of shared Arabic language engagement. And so that allowed me to sort of write what I thought my arguments were and then compare them against Egyptian cultural coverage, for instance, of the 60s and to further refine the arguments. Um, so in terms of access, I was probably always going to be writing from the museum's materials that I that I did document. 
uh, in time. Um, but in terms of who I thought my audience was and the stakes of recuperating a memory uh, where I'd initially had sort of Syrian collaborators trying to recuperate that memory and then their whole sense of doing it for the good of Syrians in Damascus in the, in the year 2010, of course that changed. And then the question is who can you, who's gonna use this narrative and, and for what future can it contribute? That changed a lot. So within the book, we can move into thinking about what the argument is that you are setting out. So in the introduction, you give an overview of your overall perspective, as well as um, a definition of what you mean by beautiful agitation. Can you tell us about both of those? Yes, thank you for that invitation. And so the book I ended up writing based on these disagreements that I was able to attend to because of the materials that were made, made available to me is an argument in its broadest form, what if we write art history without, ex without expecting that the painterly objects produced by artists are fixed objects? And the reason I asked that question is that I found that Syrian artists laboring in the particular conditions of the 20th century, which are conditions of war and conditions of displacement, conditions of colonial occupation and liberation struggle, that their discourse about the importance of art making was a discourse that I'm trying to capture with this term, beautiful agitation. Beautiful agitation is a quality of existence in the shared space of life that is activated rather than still. The sense that even like our subjectivity in the 20th century is the subjectivity of this kind of activated energy that's producing out, outer form that can be felt by artists, that artists are attuned to this agitated internal quality and can be amplified by artists, that artists' decisions about how they make their artwork, how they put paint onto a surface, that this artwork is bringing that agitated energies to some perceptible form. And that probably sounds abstract to listeners. Um, and, and yet, if you look at these artworks, these are artworks with surfaces that are deeply agitated, either by an artist building up pigments so densely that what they purport to be denoting, like a face or a body, doesn't hold as complete, feels like it's always under um, a configuration. Or an artist like Gibran that I start with, Khalil Gibran, who um, in popular understanding is associated with the book, The Prophet, and these parables about the spirit. Uh, Gibran was a painter who painted in watercolor in particular ways where the surface gets built up and looks mutable or looks uh, dense, um, thinks about watercolor in a way that a lot of trained watercolorists wouldn't. I'm interested in these artist decisions about agitated surface in the context of a kind of agitated politics. How did, how did Syrians think differently about how they could organize themselves, again, in this context of the 20th century with imposed ideas of nation states, for instance, these little countries traced on a map in a region that had otherwise been sort of unbounded and about transit, for instance, um, across the Eastern Mediterranean to the Indian Ocean and back. Those are the, that's the, historical matrix for the book and beautiful agitation is trying to describe this idea of yeah activated presence and collective activated presence what it can do for artists and how we perceive it in their work and how we understand its historical takes mistakes rather you also seem to be looking at a relationship between art and politics over over time over a time that you have described. So it's the roughly the 20th century up until 1965. Yes. Can you can you talk both about like 
overall, how you saw that relationship um, being formed or negotiated, but also how you decided on that time period? Yes. And it's a great question. So I'm hesitating thinking of how, how best to answer. You know, I consider the nation state form, which is a form of governance and a set of expectations about uh, political self-determination that is for, that we can firmly associate with the 20th century becomes the expected normative form of international uh, sort of regulating international difference and uh, recognizing and making military ideas of sovereignty, um, you know, that's brought in at the end of empires in the First World War onward in, in broad strokes. That nation state form in the scope of human time is a terrible aberration. I don't consider it uh, a natural endpoint. I don't think we're, we're not going to always have it. Uh, and it doesn't seem, if you look at the 20th century, to have guaranteed uh, stability and flourishing for humanity. Because <laughs> every time you have a border, you have people placed outside the border who aren't recognized, who then become vulnerable victims. And for me, this means that in writing histories of artwork in a region like the Middle East, and the concept of the Middle East is also pretty modern, that uh, a common strategy, and it's, you know, I have the name Syria in my title. I also, in the end, did a lot of my work in the modern nation state of Syria. A, a major point in this book is to try to write a history where the kind of narrow and, again, borders propped up by national militaries, to try to not accept that as the proper way to organize a community. And Syria, because it has such great diversity within it of uh, metrics that we now use to recognize diversity, such as of religion, of ethnicity, of language, um, it's actually not the case that Syrian artists themselves always thought of the Syrian nation state as the proper form for thinking about who they wanted to address in their artwork. So this book overall, in terms of how I structured it and ended up writing it, is an elaborate effort to undo uh, the idea that the um, nation state gives us a map for understanding the stakes of art. And I therefore choose in my telling of, of other possibilities, artists for whom uh, narrow Syria, that, who made it a point to say this narrow Syria is not going to work. It's, it isn't how we inhabit the world. It doesn't describe what's important. It doesn't give us a map for claiming the past or looking forward. Um, and the process of research then, I have to say, was a process of me um, oscillating back and forth between what I'd found in Syria proper at national institutions and what I could subsequently find about these artists in terms of who they wrote to outside the borders of their country, who they made alliances with, how they uh, sort of announced ideas of belonging. And that involved then going to literature, uh, going back to letters that people wrote, going to New York City where Gibran lived for a period of time, right? And uh, building in a wider discursive history that in the book, I argue, was, was the meaningful one for these figures. Moving into the first chapter, and that's the first figure that you're looking at, you start the book with a chapter on Khalil Gibran. Can you tell us about that chapter? Sure. Uh, I do start with Khalil Gibran. And, and again, for listeners, um, this was the, the, so in the sequence of writing the book, Holiday, the Khalil Gibran chapter was the last one that I wrote. So this is also a book, and I just remembered you'd asked about my endpoint of 65, which I'll get back to maybe when we're, when we're talking about the chapters. 
This is a book that began with a most intensive focus on the, on the 1960s for the reason that I mentioned, which is that artists who had lived through the 60s and were, and were still alive when I spoke with them said that that was the decade of the greatest excitement and sense of possibility for Syrian artists. Um, and looking closely at the 60s and sort of asking why, what was possible then that doesn't feel possible now, um, recovering, friendships by Syrian artists with artists in Lebanon, for instance, uh, and the ways that the pairing of those regions actually have been very productive, uh, poetry written about the sublating of those borders and ideas of scales of history and, and territories of history. That Uncovering that prompted me to go earlier, 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 earlier. And Gibran an Arab-American artist born in Lebanon in the late 19th century who emigrated to Boston initially in a wave of, of Lebanese immigration to work in the, in the United States in textile factories, to work as uh, peddlers of, of uh, objects in the cities, and in some cases to also even settle the American West. There's an interesting history of sort of Syrian homesteading um, Gibran comes to the East Coast of the U.S. and uh, makes his way into American, the studios of, of Fred Holland Day, this um, photographer uh, and sort of romantic figure interested in ways to make images. And uh, this formative training for Gibran is really interesting because he became very successful in the U.S. And a lot of the writing about Gibran is about his status as this Arab-American artist. What I'm interested in in the book are the ways in which Gibran actually remains deeply political in Syrian political agitation, including uh, agitating against the Ottoman Empire, which continued to uh, claim and administer the um, broad, greater Syrian uh, region on the Eastern Mediterranean up until uh, World War I, when the Ottoman Empire lost and its territories were divided between European powers. And even onward under European rule, um, Gibran's task was organized with other Syrian intellectuals to make a case for a broad Syria Arab uh, self-determination. And that uh, history of sort of political action is not well treated in a lot of American writing about him, just partly because uh, the history of Syrian politics is not well known to American chroniclers. And interestingly, Gibran's poetry um, can be found in you know, Arab literary uh, anthologies and journals by experimental poets at the forefront of Arabic language experimentation because he was an early free verse poet. His romanticism as a figure is really interesting and powerful for literary figures. He appears in journals every decade and through the 60s as this touchstone. And yet there also, he's presented as a sort of pure artist, only interested in, in the spirit. And his political, um, his political activities were also absent from that record. So the chapter is linking that history of an imagination of a different kind of Syria, uh, the question about how spirit relates to the material world as a possibly emancipatory um, status. These are questions that Gibran raised early and which Gibran attempted to uh, direct back to a greater Syrian audience. And for those reasons, the chapter open, or the book opens with a deep dive into his life and his particular decisions as an artist, because I think it sets up uh, categories of questioning that, that we can then trace through the subsequent decades and subsequent formations of occupation in Syria um, up through uh, the 60s. And I guess I'll take this opportunity to say that for me, in the mid-60s, it's not like these attitudes or interests in agitation uh, disappear overnight or something, but the Syrian political history is such that the Ba'ath Party, uh, uh, socialist, nationalist, Arabist party that 
um, in its cultural communications also actually embraces a model of agitation. As the uh, party that takes power in 1963, their actual approach to managing the populace is one of um, autocratic control. So their new press controls go into power, uh, go into play in the mid 60s, as do uh, national government expectations that artists are going to make a national art. Uh, and so the whole space for publicly imagining something beyond Syria shifts. And so for me, that means that the, the book, uh, tracing excitement around agitation, beautiful agitation, the sort of scope for doing that shifts enough that it would be a different book to trace the, the, the next phase of, of these attitudes um, after 1965. So you move from Gibran then into colonial Syria. And so you, this is also a chapter when you're not focused on an individual artist. Can you talk about um, both what you're covering within that chapter, as well as the specific history of colonialism within Syria. Yes. So let me quickly articulate the phases of history again, to your point. So Gibran is this figure who's formed by an age of empires, not only the Ottoman Empire, but also the French Empire, and gains training at French academic settings, gains tr training as a painter, uh, before returning to New York with that particular credential in, uh, in the early, very early 20th century, and then practicing as a recognized uh, painter because of that credentialing. What happens in the history of control of the Syrian region is that uh, in the wake of the First World War and the collapse of the Ottoman Empire, we have, uh, as I already mentioned, a set of uh, political negotiations by the winning European powers about how to share and lay claim to the formerly Ottoman-controlled Arab lands. And so this is an age of protectorate and mandate uh, political um, uh, mechanisms uh, for basically claiming resources of, in this region. And France is given mandate power over, uh, the, uh, over Syria, what is now Syria and what is now Lebanon. And the League of Nations justification for this structure is to think about all the world's peoples in terms of their level of development and capacity for self-rule. And this idea of self-rule and self-determination is a political idea that also emerges in the wake of the First World War, which European powers tended to interpret as having been caused by a sense of uh, minority grievance, right? Um, that peoples that don't have their own country to uh, live in, that are minority, uh, uh, speak a minority language or a member of a minority region or a minority religion are going to feel such grievance that they'll uh, organize and, and create further war. So the idea is that every people should get its own country. And what this means for Syria and, and Lebanon, a territory that had been united, is that the French military show up <laughs> uh, as colonial powers uh, you know, uh, organized from Paris by administrators who already have a great deal of experience in uh, administering territories in uh, French-held North Africa, right? So these career colonial officers come in, they bring military power, and they set about trying to make Syria a coherent territory for the purposes of administration. And that means deciding that because in their mind, Syria is majority Muslim, majority Arabic speaking, they're going to actually create Syria as a Muslim country and Lebanon as a Christian country and set about uh, trying to make those categories stick again in a region hitherto uh, recognized as greatly diverse and, and sort of properly so. And in the in what this chapter then comes in to track are the ways in which the visual arts, ideas of art history, and an emerging science of 
ethnography, how the French colonial machinery wielding these categories of inquiry both create certain institutions like the um, French Institute in Damascus dedicated to archaeology and artisanal training, how these institutions shape the field of visual arts in Syria, but how the particular Syrian intellectuals that are given spots in this colonial uh, mechanism of education and, and control who are sent to Paris to study social sciences and to study ethnographic sciences, how their experiences in the metropole shape their intellectual lives, where they emerge as critics of a mechanistic idea of the world that they associate with Einstein and modern science and which they associate with modern war making, how they come back from Paris embracing a critique of that worldview. And it's a critique that's, um, uh, articulated by figures like Henri Bergson at the time in the 20s when, when these Syrian figures like Jamil, Saliba, and Khazam, Dagestani, they're there, they encounter this critique and they return to Syria and establish a journal and establish discussion groups that espouse a vitalist view of the world, a view that we cannot understand life by mapping it uh, or even visualizing it, that it's something beneath. Again, an idea of a kind of agitated ontology that is a more correct ontology than the kind of ontologies that our modern instruments of science and war are going to show. And these figures, Saliba, et cetera, render that into the popular literary discourse. Maybe I shouldn't say popular. Into the sort of literary discourse that is getting sent back to the um, schools in Syria and give a language of agitation, of um, spirit, of material spirit, of a, Bergs of a Bergsonian idea of vitality and widely disseminate it, um, producing conditions for the sort of next phase of Syrian thinking in the in independent period, where the idea is you have to heal from this mechanistic imposition of French imperial power by claiming that agitation in new ways um, to sort of rebuild your sense of community. So it's a hinge chapter, but it was also a really um, fun chapter to write in that there wasn't a single protagonist. These were, uh, and I wrote it using sort of autobiographical accounts and letters that were subsequently published um, by these young men that were that were sent away to gain skills in, in France and came back as critics of France um, and thought about how to propagate that criticism even in the cultural and artistic realm. You then move into a discussion of Adam Ismail. Yes. Can you tell us about that? Yes, this is my favorite chapter. Uh, this is a this is chapter three and Adam Ismail uh, is a painter who was born in the 1920s in a region of Syria that is now part of Turkey, a disputed region of Syria, and came up then as an almost a sort of, you know, unwitting activist that he didn't dis decide to become an activist. He was made an activist in the 30s as uh, that region called Alexandretta or um, it has different names in Arabic. I'll just, I'll use the um, Turkish, at the time it was called the Sanjak of Alexandretta, also called Iskandarun, multiple names for it because it also was a region of many languages and peoples. Uh, Turkey in the 1930s began to make a claim for this territory using that same language of, of self-determination, national self-determination that I was um, highlighting uh, that comes from this post-World War I uh, mindset about how peoples ought to be matched to fixed territories and languages. And Edhem Ismail had grown up uh, in an Arab uh, sort of neighborhood within, uh, within the city of Antioch, gone to French school, um, faced suddenly a Turkish claim to his region under the claim that the majority population were Turkish 
and actually lived through a drive to register all members of, of the San Jack of Alexandretta as a single ethnic category. The, the French uh, administrators had a, a kind of election where everybody had to show up and declare themselves to be one of like, I think it was 10 different categories. And one of those categories was Arab. Another one of those categories was Muslim. Another one of those categories uh, was Turkish. Uh, they had a Circassian, they had a Christian, Armenian. I mean, categories that don't even add up. In you can be both Arab and Muslim. You can be Turkish and Muslim. Like categories that just were violently um, dissimulating for people who had lived as many different things. And for this artist, that experience, he saw the category of Arab as a category that allowed for many selves, as well as an articulation of unity, again, with people outside the imposed colonial borders of the time. And what the chapter goes on to do is track Edhem Ismail's entire life and career as an artist who commits himself to making artwork about the possibilities of a kind of Arab self or spirit, an agitated Arab self that is seeking to express itself in the world. And he sees that Arabist spirit in the natural world as expressing itself in the sort of bright colors of, of Arab territories. Um, he sees it in a commitment to bright color, to this uh, uh, sinuous line of Arabic, of historical Arab uh, decorative forms. And he comes up with a whole visual language that is comprised of his invitation to viewers to lose themselves in a kind of rhythmic uh, relationship to space. So he does early work in Syria when he gets there. Uh, in the end, their Arab cause in Alexandretta is not successful and he and his brothers have to leave and make their sort of rebuild their lives in Syria proper. Um, some of his earliest work are, is both a social critique of the conditions of inequality in, um, in Syria just after Syria gets its independence from France in 1946, where he begins by tracing uh, almost socialist realist um, uh, subject matter like the figure of the porter, these uh, laborers who were day laborers and paid to just lift on their backs heavy loads needed in either construction or to help rich people that just didn't want to carry their own materials. He begins from that figure, but in traces uh, the appearance of that figure using the sinuous line that he associates with um, historical Arab art in order to produce a painting called The Porter that he exhibits in 1951 that shows the figure of the porter basically dissolving into rhythm and color. He uses the line to efface or destroy outward appearance in order to release something internal. And so the chapter traces decisions like that. Uh, in the early 50s in Syria, Edhem Ismail is then selected to go visit, uh, to go study in Italy. And then he returns to Syria, is selected in the in the later 50s to go to Cairo during a period of uh, brief political experimentation where Syria and Egypt joined together as a single political unity in the year 1958 um, in the name of a kind of political Arabism associated with the um, Egyptian president Gamal Abdel Nasser. Uh, Ismail goes to Cairo, has to think through what Arabism means in that moment and produce art accordingly. And I even track in his internal correspondence how he really struggled in that period to reconcile the dream with what he saw on the street. And he starts working with calligraphy in that moment, actually thinking about writing as a way to inaugurate a world. And then he returns and, um, to Syria one more time. And the interesting thing about Edhem Ismail is that he uh, died young. He died in 19, right at the end of 1963. And this means that his whole life was lived just before the Ba'ath vision of Arabism becomes the official version of Arabism in Syria. And he, and because he's such a talented, fascinating, weird artist, <laughs> the chapter really takes advantage of that profile to just 
track all this position taking of, of the desire to use art to show an alternative to the status quo. And the other key element in this chapter is that Edem Ismail, because of his early experience in Alexandretta, this disputed category that goes to Turkey, he and his brothers and a cohort of other young, like teenage activists, go on to become some of the early founders of the Ba'ath political movement. So in their displacement to Syria, they bring Syria proper, you know, when Alexandretta is lost, they bring this fervor and this sense of Arabism as survival of uh, creative capacities that ends up influencing a lot of the rest of the Syrian historiography. So the chapter follows Edhem Ismail. It tries to shed light on decisions he's making in his images that aren't about vision, but are instead about other senses. And it links those decisions to the response, the political responses of his close comrades. And in, in one important case, his brother Sidki Ismail, and how their um, political activities produce a space for other young activists, often young men, the occasional young woman, to respond positively to Edhem Ismail's work in the context of, of a kind of political um, movement, thinking about how to reform society. So it's a, it's a chapter that, having laid the groundwork, kind of settles into a biographical account of artistic choices where I can point to these states of excitation, shared space of life as something um, that these artists had been taught by their mentors in political activism and are seeking to amplify and extend in the new conditions of Syrian independence. Your book then ends with a final chapter that is also focused on another individual artist, focused on Fatih al-Mudaris. Can you tell us about that one? Yes. Fatih al-Mudaris is, I think, probably one of the best known Syrian modernists. Um, he's been given uh, retrospective shows um, in his own lifetime at the Institut du Monde Arabe at the in the mid-1990s. And this artist was also born in the 1920s. Um, but unlike Edhem Ismail, lived um, to be relatively old, and I think passed away in 1998, had a very long career in Syria, was an incredibly talented, if enigmatic, teacher. And so sort of personally gave um, examples to other generations of Syrian artists. and. What the chapter then does is take a figure that's been embraced as a national paragon and highlight all of the ways in which Fateh al-Mudaris as an intellectual and as a painter and as somebody um, enjoying recognition as, a, as an important contributor to even national iconography, all of the ways in which he raises doubt in his decisions about how to make a painting and in the statements he gives to the press about Again, the meaningfulness of Syria in its narrow uh, nation state sense. And to make that case, I do a couple of things. I show or I, I turn to what is often a passing reference in writing about Fateh al-Mudaris, references to his early dabbling in surrealism, which is always mentioned. Um, he would mention it in interviews, uh, and yet I felt never explored like what kind of surrealism, what does his surrealism look like? Uh, and why, you know, why, um, why insist that it was merely passing, right? So the, the chapter turns to his engagements with surrealism and I uh, track those and I'll say a little bit more about that in one second. And at the same time, I look at how his engagement in his native Aleppo. This is an artist who was born in Aleppo, a northern city in Syria, not the political capital of Damascus, and who moves to Damascus only in 1964 as an artist who is by then almost middle-aged, and it, that's when he gets an appointment to teach at the National um, College of Art. So for 40 years, this is an uh, artist 
op, you know, sort of building a career outside the national capital in, in different conditions, different discursive literary conditions, different economic conditions. And he's involved in the early years as a poet. So he's a polymath. He's a composer also. He writes, um, writes poetry. He's involved in a surrealist circle in, in Aleppo that has some political ties to a different party, the Syrian Socialist Nationalist Party. And that's a party interested in greater Syria as a space of myth and as a space of uh, civilizational history that contributes to all of humanity in its um, positioning as the uh, as sort of Mesopotamia, right? The place where we think of human civilization beginning. And for Mudaris, then, as the chapter goes on to trace, uh, tactics of sort of um, automatic painting, of making images manifest on the paper where the artist um, releases control and just lets a paint do its thing or ink flow in a way that the artist isn't directly controlling. That's a technique that Mudaris generates in, in Aleppo in this context, and that I argue in the chapter continues to be the primary mode that he will um, claim in all of his subsequent art. And he does that through tactics of letting paint bleed, of like mixing paint badly so that it will dry in ways that he can't control and crack on the surface. Um, he brings sand into his paintings in the 1960s. And the other thing the chapter does is it, it shows how even in the 1960s, this time of rising nationalism in the public eye, every interview that Mudaris gives to the press when they ask him how the nation manifests in his work, he will refer to a reservoir of memory, of like Jungian memory, this surrealist idea of every person have, existing in a collective storehouse of earlier moments and civilizational histories, that it's that storehouse that produces the nation in our modern moment. And it's the storehouse that will produce other things at other moments. And so I read him through his work and career as a sort of next point in this problem of beautiful agitation. Can we make artworks that aren't fixed, that are instead occasions to manifest possibilities that might be fleeting and yet important. And Mudaris, um, you know, is a really interesting figure. He's a complete contrarian. He was never a member of any party. Uh, he could be counted on to show up at like um, national events organized by the Minister of Culture and disagree in poetic ways with everything being claimed. He just wouldn't accept categories as fixed. And that's really important. Um, both for the people he taught, but also, I suggest in the book, important for thinking about how this 20th century of position-taking and political agitation set up grounds for these really innovative uh, experimental artists like Mudaris, one of a kind, to resonate, like to produce an audience for the kinds of critiques that he's interested in in the work. Well, Annika, we've taken up a lot of your time. Could you tell us before we go what you're working on now? Yes, I am working on uh, what happens after 1965. Uh, uh, but in a, in a um, more comparative uh not just um, looking at serious sense. So I'm working on a book on experimental art pedagogy that I am tentatively calling Faculties of Perception that is interested in national art pedagogies that are written in the 1960s after uh, countries receive independence and specifically when countries decide to create a degree-granting college of art. And the question is really, you know, when you, when you toss out the occupiers and you break the models they gave you, right? Like you smash the Venus de Milo uh, plaster cast that these um, foreign experts had wheeled into the classroom and you do away with particular kinds of oil painting, what do you actually make? With what material? And who are you addressing? 
And to answer those questions, I'm, I'm especially interested in maybe what we might be able to call like the therapeutic turn, the, the how artists who were working as art teachers in the 60s, as avant-garde art teachers, think about children's educational programs and the idea that art is not about beauty, but is about the reintegration of the senses. And I'm tracking that in particular art school settings where I am able to recover from interviews and um, published sources, debates about pedagogy. So one example is the Syrian art school, circa 1965-66, where artists come together to rewrite the whole curriculum around a Bauhaus idea of making. Um, other, another chapter is going to look at Sudan, another at Algeria. A first chapter is going to track earlier experiments in Egypt in the 40s with children's education. And a final chapter that I'm most excited about is going to look at women artists that never got appointments at art schools <laughs> uh, and yet um, especially pushed and developed this kind of educational therapeutic turn in their, in their work, um, creating alternative spaces for learning. So that's the current plan. That's what I'm researching. I'm currently a humanities fellow at um, NYU Abu Dhabi, and the semester's um, allowing me to kickstart this book project. Well, Annika, that sounds like a wonderful project. I want to really thank you for being on the show today. I really enjoyed hearing about the book. Um, so thank you so much for talking us through and uh, giving us more insight into this project. Thank you, Holiday, for the invitation. My pleasure. Take care.